exercise for the week. There to here. It's like I spent this week in my car. Good morning, church. I want you to do something for me. I'm going to give you a warning right now, and I'll give you. A, I'll ask you to do it in a little while. Okay? So I want you. To, I'm, I'm going to give you. I'm giving you a warning, not for those of you who are sanguine like me, because you would just you just do it. Okay? I'm giving the warning for those of you who are a little more timid, um, a little more introverted. Here's the warning. At some point during this sermon, okay, I'm going to ask you to turn to someone near you, okay. And tell them about something that moved you recently. Okay? You got that? You need me to repeat myself. You're going to turn to someone near you. And you're going to tell them about something that moved you recently. Now, a lot of you have come here with family and friends. And that person is very near you and it's easy for you. Okay? But if you are one of those like me who feel comfortable talking to others, if you see someone around you who seems to be by themselves, um, or they're sitting next to a three-year-old, and it's really not going to matter that much to the three-year-old, if you can just discreetly let them know, okay? And be in front of you or behind you or something like that. You with me so far? You got the idea? So at some point, I'm going to ask you to do that during, our, during this, this time today, okay? So I just, this is just your forewarning, because some of you need time to think of it, okay? And as you think about it, you'll, you'll get there, Okay? This morning we're talking about Ecclesiastes. This is our second look into, the, into Ecclesiastes, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about something I'm calling the King's Legacy. The King's Legacy. I, I want to uh, back up today and collect some information about the author of this book. A little more information than we really had last time. More information than comes actually out of the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to look at some of the places where he's talked about, particularly in First Kings. It's interesting to me that the book of First Kings doesn't start with David. David was the first king, and when David was done, then they started the book about other kings. First Kings. So First Kings begins with the second king, actually begins with the third king, and uh, then they start recording what's going on with the kings. But I wanted you to, <coughs> to think a little bit about it this morning, and so I wanted to, to start with the proclamation of his, uh, of his royal uh, ascension. Solomon had a brother who was trying to become king, and David was told about this. And so he told Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, to go down and prepare him and anoint him and, and uh, state before the public that he was, in fact, the king, that he was David's choice for king. And so it begins in 1 Kings this way. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, the Kerethite, and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride King David's mule. Now, if I said, hey, you can ride my mule, would that mean a lot to you? Wouldn't, would it? If I said, you can ride an Air Force One, would it mean something to you? Okay, this is like riding an Air Force One. Okay, riding David's mule was declaring something about yourself. Okay, being on the king's mule at this point was a huge deal. So, think he got into Air Force One, flew down to the valley and landed, got out, and then this hall started. So he rides on King David's mule, and they took him to Gihon, to Gihon Springs. Verse 39. Then Zedek the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle. From where? From the tabernacle. So he takes a horn of oil from the seat of God. Okay? And he anoints Solomon. Now you understand, we do anointing with a little bit of oil. 
You know, if you've ever been part of an anointing, we take a little oil and we put a few drops on your forehead. Maybe we rub it around a little bit, but the whole amount of it is no more than about that big of an oil spot. Okay, if we get really generous, you might get some on your hair. Right. When they were anointing someone, then the whole horn of oil was poured on him. So what he did now is he went down to the Gihon Spring, the gathering place of the people where they're coming and going and getting their water. And he starts pouring oil on Solomon's head. And there's a great description of this in the scriptures about it running down over the hair on the beard, down the beard onto the clothes. So imagine this sort of going into your cabinet, pulling out the Western oil and pouring the whole thing over someone's head. Okay, that's biblical anointing. So if we start doing anointing like that, we're going to need like plastic up here, tarps or something. That's the biblical idea. That's what's happening to Solomon. So is there any question about what's going on when they start pouring this much oil on him? And this is the fragrant oil from the tabernacle. So it's not just oil. It has an essence to it. It has a scent to it. As they begin to pour it, the scents begin to fill the air as well. And it's the smell of the divine. It's the smell of royalty. It's the smell of the tabernacle that begins to permeate the region around Gihon Spring. And they anointed Solomon and they blew the horn. And all the people, and all the people said, Look, long live King Solomon. All the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him. And the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy. So that what? The earth seemed to split with their sound. Now, if you're the brother who's tried to become king, and you've kind of said, well, I'm going to be the king, I'm going to be the king, everybody, I'm going to be the king, David's dying soon, I'm going to be the king, and this happens, what are you thinking? Beg for mercy. Go find Solomon and beg for mercy, and that's exactly what he does. But I want you to understand, David had a very specific preparation. This is how this is going to happen. It's going to be loud. It's going to be colorful. It's going to be an event. And so they bring Solomon out of the shadows as one of the princes, and they place him before the people as their new king, as David's choice for king. So I want you to think about what that would be like. Even brought out of the line of David's princes, pulled out, and set out as king. Okay? The, the text continues to tell us all about Solomon, the building of the temple, and all the things he does with it. First Kings chapter 8, verse 20, this statement is made. So the Lord has fulfilled, this is Solomon speaking, his words which he spoke, and I have filled the position of what? My father David. And sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. So he's fulfilled God's promise. He's now built the temple. He's done what he was supposed to do. He's finished what God called him to do and be. Build the temple, become the king. Right? Just nod. You're all in agreement right now, right? Okay. Okay, good. I back up a little bit, pick up verses 10 and 11, because I want you to see what had happened right before this. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place. So they've just inaugurated the temple. And as the priests walk out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering before the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now, if we build our new church, okay, we build our sanctuary next door. 
and we get it all finished and the day that we move in, the big celebration and all that, all that cool stuff is going and we thank God for it and we gather and, and as Greg walks off the platform, a cloud of God's presence begins to fill the place so full that it drives all of us outside and all we can do is stand back and go, wow. Would you think that God was in favor of what you had just done. I kind of wish this would happen a lot more, honestly. I would love some really big, bold signs like this. So Solomon has fulfilled his call to become the king. God had promised through the prophets that he would become the king. Solomon would be king. Solomon has also finished the temple, and he's not only finished this beautiful temple, which he had a huge hand in designing, But God himself has shown up and said, thumbs up, Solomon. Good job. Do you feel like Solomon's on a good foot so far? I have a question, though. Would you feel like it would be all downhill from here? In some sense, I think it would be all downhill from here. What are you going to do to top God's thumbs up? Right? What are you going to do to top being anointed king of your nation? Is there really any next rung for Solomon, really, when you look at it? Okay, you, you with all that? You got that? All right. First Kings chapter 9, verses 10 and 11. Now it happened that at the end of 20 years, when Solomon had built two houses, and the house of the Lord, the king's house, Hiram the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold as much as he desired, the king Solomon gave, then gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee, and the house of the Lord, and his own house, and, and the Milo. I, the, I, I'm sorry, I left the B in there. The, the Milo is the landfill. Um, do you realize that the temple sits on a mountain that's, that's shaped like this? Wouldn't you expect that most hills and mountains are shaped like this? Yeah. Have you noticed that when you see pictures of the temple mount, it's shaped like this? It looks like a box. Have you noticed that? That's because they built a gigantic wall around it and backfilled everything behind that wall to make this big flat space on top of the mountain for the temple precincts. The thing was not flat on top before. It was made to be flat. The wailing wall that people pray at is a giant retaining wall. It's, a, it's huge. I mean, it's, it's, what, 45, 50 feet tall, but it's just a retaining wall. This Milo, this thing that he's describing, was a phenomenal feat of engineering to them, but he finished this Milo, he finished this retaining wall, and created this big square top of a mountain for them to build on. Now, I want you to think about this for a sec. When they built the... Uh, Oh, what was it? It's the where 24-hour fitness is over there now down in Roseville behind that big red statue thing that's supposed to look like a rose that I've never been able to figure out. You understand where we are right now? They put this huge retaining wall behind it and they filled it. It was very interesting. It was very cool to me. It was really tall. It's about the same height, maybe 40 feet tall. And they flattened out the top with this, with the backfill. But they did this thing with cranes and they did it with backhoes and they did it with bulldozers. Solomon did this with men and shovels and picks. You do not seem as impressed as you should be. This is 
is a phenomenal thing. It's why it gets mentioned along with building the house of the Lord and building his own palace. This, this was a huge feat of engineering. People were like, whoa, he did what? Yeah, he built that giant wall and filled in all the stuff behind it. Now it's flat and square. It's cool. It's cool. The wall of Jerusalem. So he builds, finishes the wall around Jerusalem. Hatzor, Megiddo, Gezer. These are towns. Solomon built Gezer, Lower Beth, Horon, Baleth, the T- and Tadmor in the wilderness, in the land of Judah. Cities for his chariots, cities for his cavalry. Whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. So what does Solomon do for the first 20 years of his work as king? He just builds stuff. When you're reading Ecclesiastes, do you see that in the text? He's saying, I tried building to fulfill myself. I tried finding something that would fill my emptiness. I tried building. I built lots of stuff. He did. He built lots of cool stuff. I mean, he built the Milo. Man, sometimes communication does not go past about there. And he tried really hard to find a way to, to fill this space that continued to be. He is king of Israel. God has said thumbs up to what you've just done, Solomon. God has spoken to him twice. And yet there's an emptiness. Yet there's something missing. Yet there's something he desires that's bigger and greater. King Solomon then built a fleet of ships. Okay, I built all the stuff I can build. So now he's going to build a fleet of ships. The Bible says that these guys went off and found gold and they brought back like 20 talents of gold, which doesn't sound like a lot until you realize a talent is 75 pounds. It's a lot of gold. Okay? When the queen, queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon. Now, I want you to stop for a sec. Think about a famous person you know. Think about somebody famous, somebody who comes to your mind. Okay? A living or dead. Okay, how would it feel to go in and see them and talk to them? Now, obviously, we're not raising Elvis from the dead, but when he was still alive, okay, or 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 the Apostle Paul. Everybody's going to get to see Jesus, so that one doesn't count. Pick somebody else. Okay, how would it feel to go and talk to them? This woman, who's a queen in her own right, who lives in basically Upper Egypt. Okay, she hears about Solomon and she is so impressed with the stories about this guy that she makes a pilgrimage to go and talk to him. And not only has she made a pilgrimage, she has figured out a list of really tough questions for him. You remember how Solomon's wisdom is established in the Bible in the first story, right? Two women who have who have had children near to one another, about three days apart from one another. They are living in the same house. These ladies are, uh, I always try to think of a better word for this. These are ladies who um, work, they're working girls. There's the term I was looking for. And they each had babies. And they're living in the same house. And during the night, a tragedy happens and one of them rolls over on top of her baby and doesn't know it. And she smothers the baby and the baby dies. It's horrible. It's a horrible story. The woman, waking up and discovering what has happened, takes her newborn, switches it out for the other woman's newborn. Do you remember the story? 
when they wake up in the morning and everything he discovered, this, the woman whose baby was alive and has been stolen now sees that the baby laying next to her is not her own baby. You know, you ladies who have had babies. Now, if this were just a couple of guys, I'm not sure we would have really gotten it if there wasn't like black hair and blonde hair or something. But you ladies, there's something in that. There's a, there's a connection with that baby as soon as that baby's born and you know your child. You, you see a bunch of fathers, and they're standing at that outside window with the babies. If the babies didn't have name tags on, I, I, I think it's that one over there. Could be that one, or maybe that one. It looked like one of those guys, right? Then the father finds, oh, that's a girl. Oh, well, okay, it's not that one. But you ladies know, and this lady knew, when she woke up in the morning, she looked down at this child who was now dead, she realized, this isn't my baby. And she looked over at the other woman, and there was her baby in this other woman's arm. And this fight begins. You imagine what kind of a fight this was. And this fight takes them to Solomon himself, takes them to the king. And when they get to the king, you realize they had to go through some, some local elders and judges and people before. You just didn't go straight to the king with your problem. They get to the king. This fight has been raging probably all day long. And they stand before Solomon, and the woman says, this is the story. We both had babies. We both fell asleep. She died. Her, she laid on her baby and, she, and he died. She stole my baby. The other woman says, I did not. This is my baby. The dead baby is her baby. What are you going to do? Solomon says, bring me a sword. Take the baby. We'll cut it in half and we'll give half to each of you. And the woman whose baby it was said, no, 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 don't do that. Give it to her. And the one whose baby it was not said, that seems reasonable to me. And Solomon's wisdom and his fame for his wisdom just rushed out across the country and around the, the, the local world. Queen of Sheba comes <clears throat> to test him with hard questions. And so Solomon answered, all her questions. Look at the next statement. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. This woman came up with a set of questions she thought might stump Solomon. She travels thousand miles to get to him. And nothing's too hard for him. He just, oh yeah, this is like second grade math. No sweat. I got it. No problem. The weight of the gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents, 50,000 pounds. A lot of gold. 200, he had 200 large shields of hammered gold. By the way, he also had 300 smaller ones of hammered gold. The king made a great throne of ivory. And we talk about this sometimes. We talk about the preachers will talk about Ahab's ivory throne. It's one of those cool things described in the northern kingdom. King Ahab had this beautiful throne carved of ivory. So did Solomon. But he decided to overlay his ivory throne with gold. Silver was said to be so common during Solomon's time that it was like stones. You get an impression of how wealthy the nation was during Solomon's reign. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were solid gold. You ever see those shows where they, they, they take you into somebody else's crib? You know what a crib is? 
somebody else's house. And they take you into these, these cribs that are really decadent. And they'll always take you in the bathroom. You think about that for a sec. Isn't that a little weird? Whenever you're going on a tour of one of these really extravagant places, they take you in the bathroom. They say, oh, let's go look at this person's bathroom. And they'll have these really amazing things, but they almost always have gold fixtures in the bathroom. I don't know. Is it just easier to clean? It doesn't. I mean, it gets water spots, but it doesn't have other problems. Everything Solomon put to his lips was gold. The Midas touch. Solomon, however, had fulfilled everything God had told him he should fulfill on the first day or within the first seven years. He, he became king. He built the sanctuary. And God showed up. Solomon, like his father, is a man who has deep passions. Bible says he wrote a thousand songs. Like David. Three thousand proverbs. You've read the book. Solomon was a guy of deep introspection. Seven years into his kingdom, he fulfills everything he was called to do and be. He's king of Israel. He builds like crazy for 20 years. He collects gold like you and I would collect socks. The nation is so wealthy and at peace that Solomon has nothing left to accomplish. Yet he's this deep guy who's looking for meaning and purpose. I want you to take this moment. I want you to turn to somebody near you. I want you to tell them about something recently that moved you. Go ahead. I warned you, you have to have something in mind now. Go ahead. This is permission to talk in church. Okay, wait, wait, I do have to tell you one thing. This is not turning to a person. Can I, can I borrow you for a second? Sorry, you sat in the front row. My name is Walt. Nice to meet you. This is not turning to the person. I've seen several of you do this already. It's turning to the person. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, the, the weather moved me. Okay? This is turning to a person. Okay? Make eye contact. Sorry, go ahead. So make eye contact. Somebody grab Ron on the front row up here. How are we doing? As some of the things that moved you are big, longer than things that moved other people. Somebody make sure they tell Daryl. Daryl's up here by himself. Somebody go tell him. Now I want you to imagine that nothing is moving you anymore. I want you to imagine a life where nothing really touches you anymore, where nothing impresses you anymore, where nothing makes you say, wow, nothing makes you just go, 
in, it makes you in awe. You, you no longer look up at the sky and go, wow, that's amazing. You no longer look at, it, at, a, at a tall tree and just embrace the feeling of being in front of something so much bigger and so much more impressive than yourself. Going to new places isn't touching you anymore. Seeing new people isn't touching you anymore. Getting new things isn't touching you anymore. You go and you buy shoes and you buy shoes and you buy shoes and you have so many shoes that you don't know what you have. But buying shoes just has lost its luster for you. Getting a new car used to be such a cool thing. You called your friends. You went over to visit. You drove them around in your new car. And now you get a new car and it's just a new car. It's just a necessity to get from here to there. It's no big deal anymore. It's nothing's, nothing's a big deal. A fine meal? Mm, I've had them before. A, a, a fine outing? Mm, I've been to lots of places. New clothes? No biggie. I got closets full of them. That's Solomon's life. The cupboards are full, and they're always full. He cannot write a check bigger than he can cover. There is nothing left to build, nothing to conquer, nothing to overcome. He's done it all, seen it all, knows it all, and been it all. And the Bible says this about Solomon when he's arrived at the top. But King Solomon loved many foreign women. It's an interesting little phrase, isn't it? What's Solomon done? Solomon has said, there's nothing here at home that's catching my eye. There's got to be something out there. He has a harem of a thousand. 300 princes and 700 concubines. Princesses. It's a whole different picture, isn't it? <laughs> and he's gone looking for something that will move him. These wives turn his heart after other gods. And his heart is no longer loyal to the Lord. This is the moment when things turn for Solomon. There's no longer anything that grabs him. There's no longer anything to do. There's nothing impressive to him about his life. There's nothing that's bigger than him. He seems bigger than anything and everyone. He's fulfilled everything that has ever been laid out in front of him. And he's done it with glamour and panache. And everybody's loved watching him do it. And everybody lives vicariously through Solomon. That's why we have records of how much stuff he has. There's a specific record of the design of his house. There were 16 pillars set on stones and they were 12 across and they were this and that. Why? Because people are living vicariously through this man who's not living vicariously through himself. an interesting moment in Solomon's life. He strays from the Lord. And the Lord then speaks to him two times at the beginning of his, of his life. And now here near the, nearer the end of his life, the Lord speaks to him again. And he says, Solomon, there was only one requirement for you to have everything you ever wanted. And that was that your heart stay loyal to me. And now your heart has gone after other gods. And I can no longer allow you, your family, to be on the throne. I'm giving 
ten of the northern tri- or ten of the tribes of Israel to someone else, to your servant. I'll leave one tribe with you for the sake of your father. So he ends up with two because it's his own tribe and another tribe that stay loyal to him. It doesn't happen in Solomon's life. In fact, God says to him, for your father's sake, I won't do this until after you die. So how's the news that morning? Vanity. Vanity. All is vanity. And a chasing after the wind. Here's a man of deep introspective passion. You don't write a thousand songs. You don't collect 3,000 proverbs. You don't write the books this man writes without deep introspective passions. And now life seems emptier than ever before. I think this book is his warning for us. There are three books written by this guy. The legacy that he really leaves us is not the temple. The temple's gone. The legacy that he leaves us is not the wealth of Israel or even the nation of Israel. Pretty much all of that disappeared. The legacy that this guy leaves us is a love story. Song of Solomon. Oh, it's an interesting story. It's a really interesting story. There's a lot of... A lot of scholars believe that the, the woman who's called the Shulamite should be called the Shunamite. Solomon finally finds somebody who loves him for him. This is David's son. This is a man who's always been royal and always been wealthy. Can you imagine what a burden that was? Some of you just went, I'll take it. But can you imagine how hard it would be to look every friend you ever had in the eye and wonder if they're your friend because you're the king or if they're your friend because they're your friend? This is the burden of wealth and fame. (laughs) Greg and I were talking once about a guy who was a boxer who had a guy who followed him around, paid him 60 grand a year to say, you the man, you the man, you the man. Can you imagine what it would be like to be so wealthy that you could never know whether people liked you for your money or for you? You know why I think he writes this passionate love letter and puts it out there in the public? Because he's been desperate for his whole life to have somebody see him, see his heart, recognize him for what he is. And he finally finds someone and he publishes it. He says, this is what real love is like. I've finally seen it. i finally found it. Here's a a quandary for you to consider for the day. Do you remember the story of David at the end of his life? There's a weird little story about David being so cold he couldn't keep himself warm. Remember that story? And the Bible says that they found a spectacularly beautiful woman. The Shunammite. And she slept next to David to keep him warm. When Adonijah, Solomon's brother, offended him and got himself killed, do you know what he asked for? 
the Shunammite. The story of Song of Solomon. Most scholars believe that what's translated, what's transliterated Shulamite should be written Shunammite. He's been given women who are princesses from every kingdom around him. The most beautiful women in the land from, from Egypt to Arabia are brought to him. We want to make a treaty with you, Solomon. Here, have this woman. We want, we want you to like us, Solomon. Here, have this woman. We want you to be our friend, Solomon. Here, 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 here. And there's this woman wandering around the place. In my imagination. She's lost her purpose because David died. She can't go home because of what she's become. She has no purpose. Solomon's already fulfilled his. And it seems to me that maybe, just maybe, a couple of lonely, estranged people bump into each other one day while wandering around the mansion and begin to talk. I can't tell you that for sure, but I can tell you when Solomon writes his heart in the book, Song of Solomon, he exposes a great vulnerability of someone who's found something some other person to be passionate about. He wrote the story, the, 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 the book of Proverbs. If you start reading it, you read the first stanza, and it, it's an introduction to the idea of following after wisdom. And the next line says, To my son. The gathering of Proverbs was a gathering of wisdom for the next generation, for the king who would follow him. He knew how tough it was was to be David's son, and he wanted his son to have something to guide him as he walked the same path. And then he writes Ecclesiastes. He writes to us who are under the sun that we might understand what it's like to try to find your answers. Under the sun. First Kings chapter 11, verse 11. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, have not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I set my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. The burdensome task God has given the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And indeed, all is vanity and a grasping after the wind. There is nothing on the earth that is not temporary. There is nothing on the earth that doesn't come with an expiration date. And Solomon in his wisdom has discovered that to be true. And in that same wisdom it's driving him crazy. And he finds a woman who seems to love him just because of who he is. Not because he's king. Not because he's wealthy. Not because he's wise. Just because he's Solomon. She loves everything about him. You listen to her words about him, and she's clearly passionate about this man. And he can't help himself. He publishes their love story. When he thinks about his son filling his shoes, he's felt the shadow of David cast over him all of his life. And this deep person 
This person of great introspection feels the isolation of being king, feels the isolation of being David's son, feels all of that. And he says, son, I don't want you to feel that. Here are some guidelines for you going for him. Oh, man, that Rehoboam would have read them, would have taken from his father the wisdom he was offering him. And then he writes Ecclesiastes to us. There is nothing under the sun that will satisfy you. You can't collect enough beanie babies to be happy. You cannot collect enough baseball cards to fill the empty spot. You can't have a big enough house to make you comfortable. You cannot have a large enough bank account to put away those scarcity fears. Everything under the sun comes with an expiration date. Wow, I've been thinking about the folks up on the hill who have been forced out of their houses. I was talking to a guy just last night. He and his wife were at Maranatha. By the way, uh, Maranatha's program will be continuing this afternoon. I hope you'll go over and check it out. It's just that adventure Christian up the road. He had been evacuated from his house. They had an SUV. And I, they, they had three dogs, and so they opened the SUV to put the dogs in. And the SUV wasn't packed with stuff. The SUV had the three dogs. It looked like maybe some clothes. A couple of blankets in case they had to sleep somewhere. That was it. If the fire goes through their house, everything else is going to burn. And that was it. The husband, the wife, their dogs... And the bare necessities for survival. Because everything else will expire. And he says in the book of Ecclesiastes, everything under the sun will be unsatisfying to you. But your relationship with God, that's where purpose and meaning are found. There was a book written a few years ago called The Purpose Driven Life. (laughs) Created a little controversy in our church here. Some folks didn't like it. They hadn't read it. It was a national bestseller. The pastor who wrote the book, who, by the way, was supposed to write the book in about three years, took him over eight. The pastor who wrote the book gave back his entire salary for the entire time he had been at his church because the book had paid him more than anything he could ever imagine having. And people around the nation gobbled it up and gobbled it up and gobbled it up and gobbled it up. I've read it a couple of times. Interesting, occasionally profound. But all it really says is you're going to really find purpose in Jesus. You're going to really figure out who you are when you figure out who you are in Christ's name. You're going to understand what what your reason for existence is when your reason for existence is for the kingdom. And if you continue to try to fulfill that gap inside of you under the sun, you're going to find out there's no filling the gap. The 21st century answer is the same answer that was given by Solomon, 600 B.C., 
You want to look for answers? Stop looking under the sun. Stop looking below the heavens and look to God himself. For there is nothing you can do but to fear God. By the way, that's just to establish a relationship. It's not be afraid. It's recognize who who you're in relationship with. And keep his commands. Follow his ways. That's the whole duty, the whole responsibility of man. It's not to be a king. It's not to be a queen. It's not to be rich or poor. I love the song that we sang at the end. God's grace is the same for the rich and the poor. And we who have great advantage and some of us who have suffered great loss have the same grace, the same offer from God. I want to challenge you with two things as we close. Maybe a third I'll throw in as a bonus. Number one, ask yourself what legacy you're leaving for the next generation. It's not too early to start. If you're 20, start thinking about those 10, 12, 14, 15-year-olds around you. Man, there's nothing more impressive to a 15-year-old boy than a 20-year-old man. To be able to influence and touch and point that generation to Jesus, that's an eternal legacy. And there are parents all over the globe praying for you to do that. If you're 75 and you're closing the pages on your life, find someone to invest in. I have a friend, a pastor who's been for about four or five years now taking me out to lunch. The first time he took me out to lunch, I'm really asking, why are we doing this? What's this about? And he said, I've been in ministry for 40 years. I just want to invest some of what I've learned in you. What an honor. What an honorable thing to do. If your kids will still listen to you, talk to them. If they stopped listening to you, talk to somebody who will. Keep finding someone. Keep looking for someone. You will find someone. What legacy are you leaving to the next generation? Is it a kingdom valued legacy? Is it an eternal legacy? Or is it something that comes with an expiration date? Your collection of baseball cards might get them through college, but it's not getting them to Jesus' arms. It's not bad. Sell your baseball cards. Get them through college. That's fine. But leave them Jesus. Number two. Have you stopped looking under the sun for your answers? Have you stopped looking for temporal things in search of eternal answers? If you're still looking to fill the gap with things with an expiration date, 
Solomon's cry is it won't work. It's not going to work. Bonus material, and I'll wrap up. If you found it hard to think of something to share with someone when I asked you to find something that moved you, sound the alarm. Solomon says, you know what you should do to make your life better? Eat your meals with joy. Drink your drink with joy. Speak and be with your family with joy. Take pleasure in what's right in front of you. Live in the moment because you don't have the next one and you can no longer hang on to the last one. Truly seize the day. Truly learn to enjoy and experience each breath God gives you. And look up to the heavens when you experience something that moves you and say thank you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for the words of this wise man. Words from someone who wanted to invest in us. Guided by your spirit. Directed to our heart. Help us to see them for what they are, a legacy given to us. The legacy of true love. The legacy of clear wisdom. And the legacy of reflection. I pray for your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.